Hello, all you State of the Union listeners. This is Alexi Lawless. Before we start the show, I wanted to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com. Reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead, download the new app and do it now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and the website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. Now let's start the show. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, This week, we'll be talking about... MLS is back, and the Sweet 16 that is upon us and happening right now, uh, the DeBoer firing out there in Atlanta and uh, what that means for Atlanta United, Angel City oh, making the scene. Uh, we'll be talking about the octagon or the octagonal or the oct or whatever we're going to call it. We'll figure out what we're going to call this when it comes to the qualification process for the U.S. men's national team and all of CONCACAF for the next World Cup. Uh, we'll talk about the end of what has been the longest season to date uh we'll talk about mbappe and zlatan and so much more but first joining me as always my friend my colleague my guiding light david mossy a soccer savant and a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire mossy how are you uh how are you on this uh, what are we looking at here july 28th in the year 2020 we are recording this on a tuesday it will be out on wednesday we apologize for the day delay but uh hopefully you will forgive us we had uh, a couple of days of work in a row, and Mossy is uh, pulled in a lot of different directions, uh, as as we all are. It's great, it's wonderful. We're not complaining, but uh, just from a timing perspective, it made sense for us to do uh, this and delay it a day. But we do apologize, Mossy. How are you? I am doing well. I am uh, quite tired after back to back double headers. Your, your buddy John Strong keeping me busy with uh, research requests, but uh, enjoying it very much so. There, there was a point yesterday in our uh, in our Monday broadcast double double header where and and for those of you that have listened to this show for a while, you know how much we love Mossy and how uh, interesting a, a person he is. Not just the soccer part, but but the the, the whole package. But there was a point yesterday where um, because Mossy does get sent in a lot of different directions by those of us on set uh, asking for information and nuggets and background and fact checking and confirmation there was a point where Mossy came on and uh, and told us that he had finally gotten to the bottom of uh, something that had been asked of him and he wanted just to clarify and make sure now it was of no use to us anymore but Mossy is such a perfectionist and such a professional that he wanted to make sure that Rob Stone had that information and that he had done his job and that's that's what I love about Mossy because Anybody that that you know has ever been infatuated with something and cannot stop thinking about it the way that Mossy thinks about soccer, it will stick in your craw if you don't get it. And so I appreciate that, Mossy. It said everything about you and everything that we love about you. That even though it wasn't going to be something that was going to make air, it meant something to you to get that nugget of information. I can't remember what it was about. You can you probably have a better idea. I've, I've lost track of it well and to be fair rob stone did shoehorn it later on in the show it was where does bob bradley rank in all-time wins among mls coaches and you guys were going to have a discussion on bradley and i couldn't get it to 
Rob Stone by that point, but then he mentioned it in passing later on when when discussing Bob Bradley. Yeah, I mean, look. So, so for those that that maybe don't uh, you know peek behind the curtain, obviously we have the best laid plans, and we we have a a show flow, and we anticipate what's going to happen. But in real time, you have to be able to adjust, and inevitably, while, as you're doing the show, something that you didn't anticipate or you didn't uh, you know think was going to be important comes up, and that's where Mossy and 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 all researchers come into play and are so important and. For the most part, 99.9% of the time, we're able to get it, uh, and then it, a lot of it makes air. Some of it doesn't make uh, doesn't make air. But you know, this is the, the the dance that we are doing on a daily basis. And whether it's whether it's Rob Stone dealing with the stuff that he is writing, uh, even in real time, and then uh, reading off of the uh, the prompter, or John Strong uh, in game or before game, or if something has happened in the game, uh, or if it's Mossy being much more proactive. And feeding us information and uh, and nuggets, we cannot do what we do without you. And a lot of the people that behind that are behind the scenes make us look much better than we actually are. So thank you, Mossy, for doing that. Mossy, what have you uh, what have you been up to this uh, this past week? Watching anything interesting? No, uh, given the fact that I've worked the last two nights, I am now behind on Perry Mason, uh, the Golden State Killer documentary, and I may destroy you. So I think tonight I'll probably get caught up on all that stuff. But yeah, nothing new to report on the television front. So I don't know if you grew up watching it, but the the Unsolved Mysteries show is back. It used to back in the day when I was uh, watching it, and it was on on regular television with Robert Stack and that kind of stuff. It was it was a it was kind of a uh, a supernatural type of thing, uh, and, and it dealt with a lot of UFOs and that, and that kind of stuff. Well, it's back in the form of uh, of Netflix, same brand, and I've been watching that, and I've. I've just binged through the entire, I think it's six episodes that they have right now. And there still is a little supernatural type of thing, but they deal with one case each and every uh, episode. So it's a full, it's a full hour. And that is what uh, has consumed me over this past week. That's what I've been watching. Yes, Moss. Actually, now that I think about it, I did bang out all three episodes of, I believe it's called Fear City. It's a Netflix documentary about the history of the mafia. Yes, I'm in the middle of that too. Um, so that is something new to report. I did watch that a couple nights ago. It, it is amazing to see the pictures of what New York City once was, uh, and you know how much it changed, and you know the the way that you know in this case it would be you know the mafia ruled that city and had their fingers, toes, and everything else in absolutely everything that was going on. Incredible video and uh, and pictures from what was a, a very Interesting, but also very, very dangerous time in the history of uh, of New York City, and a history that should we should say uh, spans back many you know centuries of dangerous times. And so it's maybe it's cyclical when it comes to comes to New York City. All right, Mossy, uh, enough talk about uh, the Big Apple. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, uh, we're going to jump right into it when it comes to the uh, the State of the Union. We're going to start off with uh, you mentioned Mossy been working the MLS's back tournament. We find ourselves in the Sweet Sixteen. Uh, all sorts of interesting things coming about. Obviously, a, a Sweet Sixteen is a one and done. You win, you go on. You lose, you're out. There is no extra time. There is uh, simply right into penalties. Uh, we've already had our first penalty game, uh, which was which was amazing. And a little bit more of a, a peek behind the curtain, Mossy, for our folks out there. When we have games that, at least on the surface, are not, shall we say, sexy or attractive, okay? 
it's important for us to identify things and even manufacture some things or play up some things in order to give the viewer a reason to watch. We always want people to have a reason to watch and not just the people that are going to watch no matter what. We want to bring people into the tent. And so the other day when uh, our friends from Vancouver, the Whitecaps, were playing in the round of 16, a, a place that they found themselves in, uh, and it was not expected because they were missing basically half of their starters. And the little engine that could just kept chugging away and found, them, found their way into the uh, round of 16. And so the, the story behind Vancouver is not only they're missing uh, starters, but they're missing both of their first one and two uh, starting goalkeepers. And so this third string goalkeeper, Thomas Hassal, a 21-year-old from Saskatchewan, uh, right? Is that where he's from, Saskatchewan? Uh, we'll have Alex Dowd double-check that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so a 21-year-old from Saskatchewan, and by way of the Whitecaps Academy, gets the start, was not scheduled to play, and proceeds to have what we all had hoped for and what we kind of built up before the game, a, a blinder making saves and keeping his team in this game that they are not supposed to win. Complete underdogs against, against uh, SKC. And I was very proud of what we did from a television perspective there because we gave people that might not have had a reason to watch something to watch uh, and something to care about. And you know, ultimately, it went to penalties, like I said. Uh, ultimately, Tim Melia, the goalkeeper for SKC, ended up saving a lot. And from a goalkeeper's perspective, actually, did his job, but it was still an interesting story, uh, a wonderful story. It made a game that on the surface wouldn't have been that attractive or interesting, that much more uh, interesting. What did you think about that game and the other games that, uh, that we did and that have happened so far? No, I'm very much enjoying this tournament. Yeah, that, uh, that whole Hassel story was very fun that night. You know, he was shaken up and there was a possibility that an outfield player was going to have to step in and play in goal because they didn't have a, a backup goalkeeper on the bench. So, uh, it's, you know, crazy situation and being in the bubble and not being able to bring in a goalkeeper from outside the bubble. They actually, for their previous game, had to borrow a goalkeeper from Montreal. They, they called it a one-day loan, but then when Montreal got eliminated, that option wasn't available to them anymore. So, yeah, it was a crazy set of circumstances there. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a fun night. And, and, yeah, pretty much all the nights we've worked this tournament, I've enjoyed it. It's been terrific so far. Now, uh, one person who I don't think enjoyed the MLS's back tournament is Frank DeBoer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you haven't heard, Frank DeBoer was fired uh, after what can only be looked at as a complete and utter failure when it comes to Atlanta United in the bubble down there in Orlando in the MLS's back tournament. Three and out, lost all three games, didn't score a goal. And if the powers that be over there Atlanta ever needed a reason to make a change. Uh, he basically just dropped it in their, in their lap. And now this brought up, this brought up the, the conversation because you know, we talk to coaches and we talk to players and, and we've doing it on zoom almost every single day in preparation for the games that are coming the, the following day. And I've asked all of the players and coaches uh, in particular, the coaches about how much, or little credence we should give uh, the performances in this bubble. And is it this anomaly? Is it this aberration? And is it unfair for us to, to, to judge teams? Now, I, I wanna be very clear. I don't think that the firing of Frank DeBoer, okay, was in a direct response to what happened in the bubble, but it certainly didn't help, okay? I, don't, I think it just confirmed what the leadership over there at Atlanta suspected. And that was that, 
it was not heading in the right direction. And if you are a big team, okay, it does not matter if you are playing in an MLS Cup final, if you are playing in a preseason game, or if you are playing in a bubble in Orlando, you are representing Atlanta and you are representing this big, bold, arrogant type of super club mentality. And so it does matter what happens. And when you, you know what, the bed, which is what they did, um, that's, that's not a good look. But I also don't think that this was ever looked at as the right fit. And this is where it gets into a really interesting, I guess, philosophical type of conversation. Atlanta United came on and came on very, very strong and incredibly successful. All they have known is success. Everything that they have touched has turned to gold on and off the field, let's be honest. But a lot of it was predicated and, uh, and you know, stemmed from what Tata Martino brought and the, the type of person he was, the type of personality he was, and the type of play that you know, he instilled. And you know, Frank DeBoer is a very, very different type of person and certainly a very different type of mind when it comes to how he wants to play. And so I think in a certain way, they, they betrayed their identity and the values that they had set up and that obviously were successful and went a very different direction. And obviously it didn't work. Now, did it not work because you went a new direction or did it not work because the direction that you went, you picked this person to take you in that direction? I think that's, that's what we have to decide. And maybe that will be, that will be shown in who they next hire. You know, if they go back to, you know, someone who uh, is, is much more, you know, connected and associated with, uh, with South America, whether it's Argentina or any, any place else out there where a lot of their players are coming from, somebody who's much more associated with this run and gun type of style that they, that they started with uh, a few years ago that was so successful, then I think that that will indicate that they're admitting they made a mistake, both in the direction and in the person that they went. But I'll be very interested to see. Do you think that this Mossy was justified, I guess, first and foremost? And secondly, where do they go from here? I do think it was justified. This felt like an awkward fit from day one. I know last season superficially felt relatively successful. They won a couple of trophies. They got to the conference final. But it did feel like that was in spite of DeBoer. This situation never felt right to me. And it is interesting that... DeBoer and Scalotto were hired around the same time. And I remember us saying in the podcast that it felt like those two hires should have been flipped. Mm -hmm. That if you're Atlanta United and you're trying to preserve some continuity after Tata Martino, you should have gone for somebody like Scalotto. While Frank DeBoer seemed to fit the Galaxy's identity a little bit more, and he would have been well-suited to coach Zlatan as an Ajax legend. Zlatan played for Ajax. He probably would have respected him. Um, But instead, uh, these teams went the way they went, and DeBoer gets sacked, and Scalotto it kind of feels like is headed in that direction too. Frankly, I'm wondering if either one of these guys uh, are cut out for MLS and whether they could succeed with any team and in this league. And maybe the larger question is that uh, perhaps Tata Martino was an outlier, but MLS is so unique that generally you are better off going with somebody that has uh, an understanding of this league, uh, the, the Porters, the Vannies, the Schmetzers, the Arenas, the Bradleys, uh, and rather than, taking a chance on, on an outsider, you know, a, a big name foreign manager. I don't know. Did you buy that? Do you think that's still true of this league now here in season 25? Wait, say that again. I want to make sure I understand this correctly. 
MLS is so unique that rather than taking a chance on an outsider like a Frank DeBoer who has, doesn't really have much of an understanding of the league, you, you are better off going with a safer choice. It does seem to be the Porters, the Vannies, the Schmetzers, the Bradleys, the arenas that have the greater success in this league. Is that fair? Or, you know, and, and Tata Martino was perhaps an outlier rather than, than the path to be followed. I do feel that he was an outlier in that he is special, uh, in that he has the ability to adjust. I think he came in, took a look at the landscape and understood exactly what it was and maybe more importantly, what it wasn't. So no, I don't think that, are, are you hedging your bets, getting somebody with experience that understands the landscape uh, because you know he or she has been through it? Yeah, of course you are. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the work and try to find that, that outlier. And I don't think that they are as rare as you're making it out to be. I do think that there are those out there that would not only relish, but have the intelligence um, and the depth to understand that they are coming into a very different and unique type of situation. You know, for example, yep, Stom, uh, okay. Look, jury's still out, we don't know, and it's a very small sample size. But at least we saw within this tournament an ability to adjust and be flexible and not whine about what MLS is or what MLS isn't and to recognize, while I may have wanted to do this and maybe ideally I want to do this, I can't necessarily do that. And it became very, very pragmatic and he ended up getting uh, some results. We'll see how long that lasts. But that's a quality and that's a trait that I don't think is is simply, you know, either you have it or you don't, okay? And so I, I do think it's worth spending the time and the resources to find out. And this is where the interview process and the understanding of the person that you are actually getting is so important because like any human, if you want the job, you're going to tell people what they want to hear. And you got to be able to cut through all that BS when you are assessing a candidate and understand what the core and the essence is of the coach that you are getting, because they will try to fool you. And they will tell you, like I said, everything that you want to hear. And it will sound rosy. They'll tell you that they can adapt. They'll tell you they can be a flexible. They'll tell you that they understand the realities of what MLS is. Uh, is. And a lot of times they don't. Either they haven't done the work or they just completely misjudge actually how much the difference is when it comes to what's going on with, with MLS. Yeah, so, the test cases for my theory... And the guys that I suppose yep. could disprove my theory right now, Matias Almeida, who has shown some positive signs with San Jose. You've got, as you mentioned, Yap Stam. You've got Ronnie Dela. Thierry Henry did play in MLS, so I guess he might fall in the category of being somebody that does have an understanding of the league, but he's sort of in the middle there. Uh, he, he's never coached in it before until now. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it's an interesting sort of big picture question that I think, it, you know, whether, whether MLS is so unique that, you know, it, it's beneficial to bring in somebody that has a – an understanding of the league versus somebody completely from the outside. But, um, you know, we'll see how, how it plays out. Um, you know, in, in terms of replacements, you asked me, uh, 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 Greg, uh, let me get his name here. Uh, Greg Seltzer, is it? Uh, MLS.com. Uh, he put together a list of candidates that he thinks Atlanta should consider. And it, it's, it's a bit all over the place. I mean, you've got everybody from Mauricio Pochettino. I don't think that's going to happen, but you've got, um, uh, Patrick Vieira, 
You've got, um, he even threw in uh, Dom Tarant, who I guess has emerged as, from what I read, as the favorite for the Flamengo job, replacing Georgie Jesus. So if Atlanta wanted to go that way, they better hurry up because he's about to get another job. So it's, it's, a, it's a 10-man list. People can check it out. Uh, pretty interesting. And it's kind of all over the place. It runs the gamut from guys, as you mentioned, that would have sort of an understanding of, the, of Latin America and a connection there. And then, you know, other names that are sort of out more outside the box than that. But um, I don't know. I don't have a sense for which way they're going to go. I did read a quote from the general manager that said it definitely has to be somebody that plays aggressive, proactive soccer. So that was an acknowledgement that the board might have been a mistake in that regard, that they need mm-hmm. to go back to sort of the mentality they had under Tata Martino from a style of play standpoint. Yeah, I don't know what they are going to go with, but ultimately, like any coaching hire, it's about getting somebody in there that's going to to win. And you know, had Frank DeBoer continue to win and win at the rate of a Tata Martino, it would have been really interesting to see if how much the way that they play really mattered, as opposed to the actual results and the or the poor results when it comes to Frank DeBoer, and at least from the outside, the perceived problems that he may have had with players in that, uh, in that locker room. Uh, all right, Mossy, when we look at uh, the, uh, you know, the quarterfinals here, we already got some that are set up. Uh, as we said, we still got some games to happen tonight, Philadelphia versus sporting KC. We mentioned sporting KC went in, uh, went on after the uh, penalty kicks against Vancouver uh, and young Thomas Hassel. Uh, so Philly sporting, I don't know uh, what's going to happen there. Those are two very evenly matched teams. Uh, we got NYCFC that completely demolished Toronto FC. Toronto FC looked like they were already on the flight back to the Great White North. They looked disinterested in the entire proceedings there. And NYCFC just pressed them, won the ball, uh, and there was only one team on the field ultimately when it comes to Toronto FC. And it's disappointing because I think Toronto FC is much, much better uh, than uh, than they showed. Uh, any any thoughts on that game before we uh, look at the other stuff? Yeah, to be fair to Toronto, bad break with Akinola getting injured, Josie yep. not being fit, so they had to play without a center forward. Pozuelo was employed in a false nine role. Uh, but yeah, I was texting with Ian Joy about this game. He is uh, doing well, by the way, on the East Coast. Uh, very excited about this performance. Uh, you felt like NYCFC are back. Uh, and yeah, this is such a talented NYCFC roster that eventually it was gonna, they were going to yeah. have a breakout performance because we we're going into this game. I mean, to look at it, um, Castellanos, or Castellanos, as they say in Argentina. All right, okay, stop <laughs> it. Um, uh, none of Castel- Castellanos, uh, Morales, Mitrita, or Eber had scored an MLS goal yet uh, this season, uh, which is crazy. And, and three of those guys, Castellanos, um, uh, Morales, and... Um, Oh, well, well, those two scored in that game. Medina scored for the second straight game. Eber came on late and hit the crossbar. So uh, some of their best players are kind of snapping out of it and maybe rediscovering their form, uh, which I, I think was going to happen eventually because that is such a talented team. Uh, and I think still they're, they're poised for, for very good things this season. So, yeah, it was nice to see them uh, put forth a performance like that, deserved winners over Toronto. Uh, and now they will face either Portland or Cincinnati. And with all apologies to Cincinnati and Yapstam, I'm hoping it's Portland because I think I've been very impressed with Portland in this tournament. And I think NYCFC Portland would be a terrific quarterfinal matchup. As you said, we're taping this on a Tuesday morning. That game is tonight. So by the time you hear this podcast, we'll, we'll know who the winner was in that one. 
but I, I am hoping that it's Portland. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be Portland. It's going to be yep. Portland. Famous last um, words, right? Uh, so yeah, so then it'll be Portland, NYCFC. We already have the other matchup on the other side with Orlando and LAFC. Orlando, the darlings of this tournament, obviously in their backyard. Orlando, not a team we necessarily have associated with any type of success over the years since their, uh, since their beginning. Uh, and so they are using this to at least attempt to redefine who they are. And this gets back to, are you really what you are in the bubble, in the Brigadoon type of, type of experience? Uh, or is this producing a, a, a false representation uh, and just underneath that magical bubble, things, things, are, things are falling for you. And then when that bubble bursts, you're going to be sent back to reality like, uh, uh, like Cinderella um, uh, with the, uh, you know, and drop your shoe and that's it by midnight, the pumpkin, all that kind of stuff. And then you return to uh, the lowly type of team that you are. Is, is Orlando for real for you, Mossy? Grant Wall had a great uh, tweet. He said that Orlando are giving off a Russia 2018 vibe. And it is, it is interesting that even without fans and in what's ostensibly a, tr a training complex, not really a stadium, there still is kind of a home fieldish host team kind of vibe around Orlando that they might be feeding off of and benefiting from. And yeah, I mean, Oscar Pareja doing a great job. They're playing very well now. It's a tall order in this next match against LAFC because I mean, we can transition to that. I mean, that was the performance of the tournament. Uh, so far, they hammered Seattle 4-1. It should have been worse than that. They were actually incredibly wasteful in that game. And listen, uh, we, don't, we don't have to go down the rabbit hole again about arguing the merits of a playoff system versus the way they do things in Europe and, 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 and the Supporter Shield winner or the MLS Cup winner who has a better claim to having been the best team in the league. All credit to Seattle. They won MLS Cup fair and square. But I'm sorry, LAFC are the best team in MLS. And to the extent that MLS has like a big, bad Bayern Munich Juventus type team, I think it is LAFC. And they confirmed that again last night. I mean, that was a real like statement flex the muscles performance. Here. Oh my goodness. It was, it was wonderful. They, they were wonderful. And I will say that Seattle had no answers and they kept just playing right, literally playing right into their hands by trying to play out of the back with both, both personnel and a strategy that, they couldn't, they couldn't handle, I'm talking about Seattle. Seattle couldn't handle what they were trying to do from a technical perspective or a tactical perspective and played right into their hands the amount of balls that were won in advantageous positions uh, and easy balls and just you know, careless turnovers trying to play out of the back and mistakes was, was absolutely ridiculous. And that stubbornness of Brian, uh, uh, Brian Schmetzer and company was really something to see. And it was, it was comprehensive. From start to finish, like you mentioned, they could have scored, LAFC could have scored a bunch of goals. Look, I know they don't have the best player in Carlos Vela, but Diego Rossi, okay, is the real deal and uh, is just continuing to confirm why there is so much interest in him. The value continues to rise. And it's, and it's not just his, his speed, you know, his, his finishing ability, although he missed, oh, he missed some chances there. I mean, he is right now worth the price of admission, kind of like Vela. I know, it, I know the dynamic changes when you get Vela back in there, but you know this. You know, I had, I had said before uh, about the difference between a team that is like Orlando that hasn't traditionally been good in the regular season, and then all of a sudden is good in the bubble. And I don't give them the benefit of the doubt because it could just be a, an anomaly. 
but a team like LAFC that has been good in the regular season in normal times and now has been able to translate it, by the way, without their quote-unquote best player in Carlos Vela. I mean, that is the mark of greatness. That is the mark of greatness in terms of the individuals that they have, in terms of the coach that they have in Bob Bradley. And that greatness was on display in that 90 minutes against Seattle. It's not, it wasn't a perfect performance. It never, it never is. But if you want to put something in a time capsule and say, look, this was when we were on and we recognized the weaknesses and we went right at their weaknesses and we capitalized. And then the individual brilliance and magic of some of the uh, players that they have, it was a special performance uh, from Bob Bradley and, uh, and LAFC. And I, and I was thinking about this last night. And look, I'm not comparing LAFC to Pep Guardiola's Barcelona teams, but uh, I am going to compare them in this sense. Um, uh, it was always amazing to me that with Barcelona in those years, you had the greatest player in the world, maybe the greatest player of all time in Messi, and he felt like the icing on the cake. It wasn't like the team was built around him. They had this great team otherwise. Uh, case in point, you had seven or eight players on that team that started for Spain when they won the World Cup in 2010. So you had this foundation of being a great team anyway, and then you were plopping Messi on top of it. And I kind of feel the same way about LAFC. It's not like they're built around Vela. They have a great team otherwise, and then you're plopping the best player in the league on, on top of it. So it, it just makes for a frightening combination. But I will say that, you know, part of the... <laughs> Part of the way that we look at Orlando is we're so unaccustomed to seeing them in a positive light. <laughs> and now here in, in this bubble, you know, they are this, this wonderful shining light right now. If Orlando somehow figures out a way to beat LAFC with what we have just said about what LAFC is right now, even without Carlos Vela, I mean, that would be something. And that would start to change my mind a little bit depending on how, how they did it, but certainly if they were able to get through the likes of LAFC, that is a, that is a tall order. Um, the the, uh, the uh, final, quarter, final quarterfinal matchup uh, is to be determined. We mentioned San Jose, which is, <laughs> and I know you want to talk about Matias Almeida, as you should, because it is, it is chaos theory with him. I mean, it is, it, it is a beautiful mess every single time his team takes the field. I know he, he kind of wants that, but I'm not sure he even knows what to expect when his team takes the field. And, and I love it. As I've said before, there, we talk so much about identity and philosophy and style of play, and so much of it is BS. And now we see someone who actually says, this is how we're going to play. We're going to man to mark one-on-one uh, -on -one all over the field, okay? We're going to press you all over the field. We're going to find the possession. We're going to figure out a way to score. We're going to substitute on 35-year-old, 34-year-old, 35-year-old. So we're going to then figure out a way to end the game and, uh, and score goals. It is madness in the most beautiful sense. And I, I'm here for it. And I love it. Uh, they went through against uh, Real Salt Lake, and they were the better team. Even within that madness, they were the, uh, the better team. And they're going to face the winner of Columbus and the Loons over there with Minnesota. So uh, I guess, first off, your thoughts on San Jose. Yeah, I mean, the, the Wando thing is so interesting how he's now late in his career carving out this niche as the super sub. He's now scored in three straight games coming off the bench. He's almost like the Mariano Rivera, the closer <laughs> that they, they bring in uh, to ice these games. And, and yeah, they've been a fun team to watch in this tournament. And, you know, I, I insulted Cincinnati before by saying I, I'm rooting for Portland tonight. I, I'll do that in, in the other game tonight as well. I'm really rooting hard for Columbus with all due respect to the Loons because I was so impressed with what I saw from Columbus in the group stage. 
like from the midfield up, the pieces fit so well with Artur and Nagby and Zella Ryan and Zardes. I, I thought Burhalter's kid looked really good when he played. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to see that matchup, uh, Columbus against San Jose. I think that would be a fun quarterfinal. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm rooting for. All right. Well, as we finish off our little MLS talk here, uh, my good friend Luis and Alex have confirmed that uh, Thomas Hassal was a goalkeeper from the Whitecaps Saskatchewan Academy Center. Okay, so he is out of Saskatchewan, even though he was born in Cambridge, Ontario. It sounds better than when we say Saskatchewan. So uh, we're going to watch him develop going forward. All right, Mossy, uh, let's move on to uh, some other stuff that's going on. NWSL uh, Challenge Cup finally uh, comes to a conclusion. Congratulations to the Houston Dash who took care of uh, Chicago in this you know, bubble. And I guess first and foremost, we are, we are all thankful that everybody was healthy and safe throughout the bubble. And it gives a wonderful kind of test case and uh, template for others to look at and to, uh, to follow. Congratulations to the league for pulling this off, uh, being the first ones to come back online and more importantly, successfully pulling off a bubble type of scenario that we have now seen MLS and the NBA and the NHL uh, employ uh, or, or start, to, uh, start to employ uh, going forward. Good numbers when it comes to the television television viewing. And I think that there was a relevance that was achieved through the tournament. A good action. Uh, congratulations to uh, Rachel Daly for winning the, uh, the, golden, uh, the golden boot. And I just think all in all, this has to be viewed as, as a success, not just because of the bubble and the safety issues uh, and coming out of that unscathed, but also, you know, like I said, being relevant, you know, making making a point there and being the center of attention uh, at at different times and furthering it. And one of the things that that they I think they did very very well is synergy and recognize that they had this window of opportunity. So much so that they announced their expansion team within this window, which I think was really really smart. And I'm talking about Angel City FC. Here in my hometown, we are getting an NWSL team, which is wonderful for Los Angeles. I think it's also wonderful for the league, obviously, the, the market size and the importance of uh, Los Angeles. Now, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is, you know, we talk about uh, LAFC and the amount of ownership uh, and owners that that team has. This is, this is rival, r- rivalry in terms of the amount of owners. And whether you're talking about big name uh, Hollywood stars like Natalie Portman, whether you're talking about big name athletes like Serena Williams, uh, whether you're talking about big name soccer uh, stars in Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and so much more. The list goes on and on and on. And it is, you know, certainly uh, predominantly female owned and majority female uh, owned when it comes to the, uh, the ownership group. But ultimately, they're going to, you know, establish this brand. And it doesn't matter who the owner is or the owners are it's got to be successful, which means they have to put a good product on the field. They have not decided yet on the actual name, but I'll tell you what, I like Angel City FC if you're going to do it. I mean, I think, I think you can do some great branding when it comes to the, uh, uh, you know, to the stuff when it, uh, for, uh, for any type of team. And I, I think that sounds good. I don't think that they're going to change it. I hope that they don't change it. But regardless, this is good news. And this is not just good news for women's soccer or for the women's soccer league. This is good news for soccer, especially in the city that, uh, 
that we live in here in Los Angeles. Uh, anything to add, Mossy, before we move on from uh, NWSL? No, I mean, I'm, I'm the guy always banging the drum that for the long-term growth of women's soccer, the club side of it really needs to get bigger. And so I echo everything you said. This was a massive success. I was very impressed by the television ratings. So there, there's definitely an appetite for this. And it, it's, it's good stuff happening with women's soccer in this country. All right. Let's move on now to uh, other good stuff or potential good stuff. Uh, we have not known because of the, the pandemic what qualifying for the next World Cup is going to look like when it comes to the, uh, the men's side uh, and 2022 in Qatar. We now, uh, after CONCACAF came out uh, with a, you know, uh, you know, publicly yesterday, which would have been on Monday, and announced that we now have what is going to happen. We know traditionally it's been basically the hex. There's been some preliminary stuff and then the hex, which is the final six teams, and then the top three automatically qualify. And then there's a potential for a fourth. So basically CONCACAF, the region in which we play, has three and a half, shall we say, um, opportunities to qualify for, uh, for, for a men's world cup. We now learn that it's actually going to be, it's going to come down to the octagon from a U.S. perspective, because we're already through. That's when we are next going to see Greg Berhalter and company in a qualifying type of situation. Won't happen until the middle of next year, but it's going to involve eight teams as opposed to six teams, which obviously means home and away in the previous, uh, hex, you had 10 games. In this situation, you're actually going to have 14 games. Uh, I hope I have explained that correctly. There's a whole lot that happens before that, but from a U.S. perspective, okay, we go right to the octagon or the octagonal or the oct or whatever you want to call it. What are we calling it, Mossy? Yeah, octagonal, I think makes sense. All right, the octagonal. Hexagonal. Let's just call it the oct. The oct, all right, is coming, and it's coming next year. It's eight teams. Do you think we've always said that in these strange times, it's not about being fair. It's basically just doing the best you possibly can with the crap situation. Is this, is this actually an improvement or is this just the best you could possibly have done with the crap situation? Yeah. I'm I'm still trying to process this, to be honest. I thought the whole point given the pandemic and the loss of FIFA dates was going to be less games, less travel, less convoluted. And in comparing the, the previous system to this one, it's not apparent to me that, that, that that's the case, that this is any simpler. And it feels <laughs> like they've added made more, it more complicated and confusing. Yeah, it feels like they've added more games and more travel. It, it, it strikes me that they just use this pandemic as an excuse to address what was the major criticism of the, the other system was that it was exclusionary because what they were going to do is the top six ranked teams from CONCACAF on the FIFA rankings, we're going to compete in the hex. And then teams seven through 35 are going to compete amongst, amongst each other. And that was going to spit out one team that would then face the fourth place finisher in the hex in a two-legged playoff. And then the winner of that would go to the intercontinental playoff against a team from another federation. So in other words, if you were in teams, one of those teams seven through 35, you had no direct path to the World Cup. Your best case scenario was going to be ending up in that intercontinental playoff. So people felt like that was kind of exclusionary. And what they've done here is they've connected things a bit more. You still have the top five ranked teams go directly into the octagonal and the other 30 teams compete against each other first. But then you spit out three teams that will then join the five in that final eight. So a, a, a 
a country like Canada, which isn't in that top five, but they know if they get through the first two rounds, they at least then get to join the, the big boy table, if you will, and compete against the U.S. and Mexico. And if they finish in the top three of the octagonal, they can qualify directly for the World Cup. So, so a country like that, I guess, is celebrating this because, it, you know, the whole thing feels more connected. And, and I will say, I, I, I bring up Canada. To me, the emergence of Canada from a neutral standpoint is the most interesting story in uh, CONCACAF right now with guys like Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David, and even we're singing this MLS back term with guys like Richie, Richie Larea. And so uh, the, the prospect of Canada getting into that octagonal and getting two U.S.-Canada games, two Mexico-Canada games, that to me is a positive. Plus we preserve you two U.S.-Mexico games, which some of the other formats that were being tossed around as possibilities in the last few weeks wouldn't have necessarily included that. So from that standpoint, just from getting more fun games standpoint as a neutral, I think th this is a positive and, and, and potentially better than what they had planned before. Okay. So from a U.S. perspective, now with 14 games instead of 10 games, the cynics out there, especially with uh, what happened in the previous cycle, will say that this gives the U.S. 14 opportunities to screw this up. Now, the believers out there and the dreamers uh, and the, uh, the romantics out there will say, you know what, this gives us 14 opportunities and four more opportunities uh, to actually get back to where we belong, which is at the World Cup. Look, notwithstanding what happened in the previous cycle, qualifying for a World Cup from the U.S. should be an expectation, okay? And even in this scenario, and maybe more so in this scenario, it should be an expectation. The, the business behind U.S.-Mexico is real, and this, as you said, preserves that U.S.-Mexico, those two games, those home and away uh, games. Where the U.S. decides to play that game is really going to be interesting. Uh, even in normal times, it would, but in this situation, it's going to be interesting. My good friend Stu Holden, we were talking about this last night on air, and you know he was bringing up the fact that while these games are now scheduled in that they are written in, who knows, first off, they're, if they're going to happen, we don't know what the future will bring. Secondly, if they are happening, how do we deal with the travel situation? And also, are these going to be in front of fans? And we don't know when the next time sporting events or any kind of communal situation is going to happen where people can gather and watch something. So is that going to change it? Are there going to be CONCACAF bubbles in the future? I think everything's on the table. I think that CONCACAF kind of had to do something, but let's be honest, they are just hoping that this, that this happens. And you gotta be fluid and you gotta be flexible going, uh, going forward. But at least we have something. If you're Greg Berhalter right now, you know that the next time your team is going to play is next summer or it is scheduled to play who knows what u.s soccer does but is scheduled to play a meaningful game is wait not next summer next march right mossy yeah march of 21 will be the Concacaf nations league right. semifinals and finals um so the u.s will have competitive matches there and that but that will be in the u.s i think and Correct. uh you know that also also could possibly lead to a final that has u.s mexico's which would be the best case scenario from a Concacaf perspective but you know it's <laughs> If you're a national team coach right now, it must be very strange. You know, and then we, we haven't even dealt with the fact that 
you know, if you, you're, especially if you're Greg Berhalter, you've got a lot of players that are playing around the world and in different places. And are they going to be, are they going to want to, or are they even going to be allowed to get on planes and fly wherever it is, either for a friendly or for a competitive uh, situation? So there's still, there's still a lot of questions and a, a lot of what ifs when it comes to a situation like this. But at least CONCACAF has said this is going to happen. Uh, it does shape up that if this all happens to be a hell of a summer of soccer uh, next year with both Gold Cup and uh, Copa America and all sorts of stuff in between and before and after. So the, the potential for a lot of soccer exists. What that soccer ultimately looks like in terms of the packaging might might be different, but hopefully at least a, a referee blows a whistle and there are actual games. And this will be my last comment on this. I've said it before on this podcast, but I'll reiterate it. Uh, none of us like the idea of a winter World Cup, but boy, did that turn out to be a godsend <laughs> and having those extra months to play with here because uh, the, now the intercontinental playoff isn't scheduled until the summer of 2022. So uh, they were able to take advantage of that to, to get all of qualifying done. All right. Well, listen, we've gone long uh, and this has been a long segment, but I, we wanted to get all of this in uh in the first segment we're going to take a little break right now and when we come back we'll be doing uh you know some world wrap-up we'll be talking about the epl and syria and uh mbappe and zlatan and some different things out there so uh stay tuned all right moving on Okay, we're back. Uh, let's uh, let's do some world wrap-up here, Mossy. Uh, the longest season in history is, is finally over when it comes to the EPL. Congratulations again. Oh, my God. When, when, when do we stop congratulating them? Uh, congratulations, Liverpool, again, on your title. But, you know, the next season is <laughs> weeks away and right around the corner. So get whatever rest you can possibly get, and then you'll be right back uh, – right back at it as is always the case when we're dealing with a with leagues that have promotion relegation not just the title winners and the people that that are at the top but also the people at, at the bottom or coming into leagues are very very important so give us a little uh, primer on what uh, happened when it came uh, to promotion relegation alexi do you remember the very first premier league game after the restart aston villa sheffield united there was a goal line technology apocalypse yes, sheffield yes united I do. scored a yes. goal the ball clearly crossed the line it wasn't given so it ended up being nil-nil. Uh, that mistake kept Aston Villa in the Premier League. Uh, they stay up. Uh, Bournemouth, Watford, and Norwich are the three teams that go down. Uh, in terms of uh, promotion, we know Leeds and West Brom are the automatic uh, promoted teams. West Brom, uh, I, I send a congratulations note to our good friend Mark Young, who's a big uh, Baggies fan. Uh, and now the uh, playoff is going on to determine who that third promoted team will be. Um, Fulham uh, is taking on uh, Cardiff, and then uh, Swansea-Brentford is the other matchup. Um, so one of those four teams will be that third uh, promoted team into the Premier League next season. Uh, the other uh, big point of intrigue in the last uh, day was the top four race. Chelsea ended up beating Wolves. United beat Leicester. So United finished third, Chelsea fourth. Those two teams go to the Champions League. Leicester, who spent virtually this entire campaign in the top four, they drop out. They finish fifth. Leicester and Tottenham go to the Europa League. And then there's one Europa League berth still to be determined. Uh, we have the FA Cup final uh, coming up uh, Saturday, August 1st. Chelsea against Arsenal. Um, rematch of last season's Europa League final. Uh, if Chelsea were to win that game, uh, then Wolves get the last Europa League spot. If Arsenal were to win the FA Cup final, 
they go to Europa League. There's been some debate uh, amongst Arsenal fans. Uh, do we even want to go to Europa League uh, next season? I say absolutely yes. You want that other path to the Champions League because top four could be absolutely brutal next season with Chelsea and United in the uh, ascendancy and obviously Liverpool and City being as good as they are. So I'm sorry. To me, it's not even a debate. It doesn't take that much effort to get through the Europa League group stage. You can play the kids there. You don't really have to think about it until February, March. And by then, you kind of have an idea of where you are in the league. And it could end up being that the Europa League is your better path and where the, the basket that you put your eggs in. And so I don't know why you would like dismiss that, dismiss that path to begin with. I, I think if you're Arsenal, you do want to win that game, not just because it'd be nice to win the FA Cup, but also you do want to <laughs> be in the Europa League next season. That's my take on that. I don't know. Well, any other big picture overall impressions of the Premier League here? I mean, the whole Europa League thing. Yes, playing in Europe is important. But I just think that it has been <laughs> Europa League has just been maligned and continues to be either by players or coaches by, and fans that is it is it just that you're trying to manufacture excitement and energy either either internally for the people that you're around or maybe more importantly for your for your fan base you say that it's important from an imaging standpoint uh or from a recruiting standpoint or just i mean why is it important to you Monsi? because the Europa League winner gets a Champions League berth. Ultimately, what you're trying to do is get back into the Champions League. And so what I'm saying is if you're Arsenal, you'd like to have two cracks at it next season, either by finishing in the top four of the Premier League or winning the Europa League. I know there are Arsenal fans that say, well, if, you're, if we're not in the Europa League and we don't have to expend energy in those games, it would increase our chances of finishing in the top four in the Premier League. But I'd rather give yourself those two different paths to, to qualifying for the Champions League. That's my point. So uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. That makes sense. That that makes sense. Although, and maybe it's just the, the, the hubris of Arsenal. Maybe if I'm Arsenal, I'm saying, well, but of course we'll finish in the top four. I mean, we'll, we'll we're Arsenal. We'll figure out a way. And uh, you know, that, obviously that would be give, quite the hubris con considering they haven't done it. Now. I understand <laughs> that, but that's the whole point is that they still think that they are something that they are not. <laughs> um, uh, before we move on from the Premier League, I do want to address something here. Uh, oh, so, okay, all right. Yes, uh, there's a there's a there's a mossy rant coming. Okay, uh, lay it on. Ready for this? They hand out two Player of the Year awards in the Premier League each season. One is voted on by the players, and one voted on by the media. And the media one was announced uh, late last week. Uh, it's the Football Writers Association Player of the Year award, and it went to uh, Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson. Um, let me say this about that. Jordan Henderson is an excellent player, very important to Liverpool's success. Uh, he's also a wonderful human being. He's done exemplary work during this <laughs> pandemic. All of that is true, but here's what's also true. There's no world in which Jordan Henderson played better football than Kevin De Bruyne this season, none. Uh, this was a storyline, the uh, a narrative the, the, the English media fell in love with. It just snowballed. Jordan Henderson is the sort of pick that makes you feel like a smarter, more sophisticated fan that sees the game beyond the numbers and appreciates leadership and intangibles and all of that. But still, there's no world in which Jordan Henderson played better football this season than Kevin De Bruyne. I've said this on the podcast before. Uh, two seasons ago, when City finished with 100 points, 19 clear of the pack, smashed every record, Salah won all the Player of the Year awards over De Bruyne. So a precedent was set that season that just because a team has a historic season doesn't mean somebody from that team has to win Player of the Year. It is possible for somebody on a different team to have been the best individual that season. And 
in my opinion, anybody who understands football and paid attention to this Premier League season, you have to come to the conclusion, Kevin De Bruyne was far and away. I don't even think it's debatable. I've heard people say, boy, this was a really tough year. I don't even think it's a tough year. Kevin De Bruyne was far and away the best player in the Premier League this season. He was one of the three or four best players in the world this season. And I, th- I find it absolutely criminal that he did not win this award. Well, Mossy, as we know, uh, uh, and has been uh, proven time after time, that when human beings get in that booth and close that curtain, uh, strange things happen or unanticipated things happen uh, when they are voting. Why do you think then that people decided that this was going to happen? Well, there's, um, you know, I, 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 this Liverpool season is viewed differently than cities two seasons ago. There, there's more of a romance attached to what Liverpool did this season and winning that first title in 30 years. So there is a, a greater sense of, oh, it has to be a Liverpool player. And Jordan Henderson, it is such a nice redemption story. He's a guy that, that suffered so much criticism earlier in his career. And, and, and for him to enjoy all the success he's enjoying the last couple of years, I'm happy for him. Like I said, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy, an excellent player. Stop qualifying it. Right? You're <laughs> crushing him. You're basically saying so, that he was gifted this because yes, he's English yes, and he plays was, on was. Liverpool. He was, yes. It's a nice redemption story, but Jordan Henderson was not one of the 10 best players in the Premier League this season. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, you have to give it. It's the Premier League Player of the Year award, and, and to me, it should have gone to De Bruyne. If, okay, if he's not, then, is he even the best player on his team? No. I okay, mean, so who, who would have been closer to De Bruyne for you on Liverpool? Well, yeah, if, if Van Dijk, Mane, I mean, guys like that to me are, are, are certainly better players. And yeah, I mean, we've almost gotten bored of how great Van Dijk is. But I mean, I think you'd, you'd probably, if you're going to give it to a Liverpool player, I think you'd, you'd probably go to him first. Well, I think that you have laid out your case wonderfully. I think that uh, you hate the English. <laughs> uh, and the only thing that you hate more than the English is Liverpool. If, if Keith Costigan <laughs> listens to this podcast, it's the end of our friendship, by the way, because oh he, my he's all goodness. in on this Jordan Henderson thing. He's interviewed him many times. He loves him. And he, Keith might never speak. N- to nobody's him. saying like, like, as you, as you so eloquently put, it, it, he's a nice guy. All right. Nobody's saying he's not a nice guy. Okay. Nobody, nobody is saying that he does horrible things to people. All right. Nobody's saying that he's even a bad player. You're just saying that. In no way, shape, or form on any planet, (laughs) including Earth, does he deserve to be named the best player over someone like Kevin De Bruyne. Okay, I think think you've made your point very, very clear. I I happen to agree with you, um, but I'm always fascinated by the you know, the way that the mind works and how people think. And, you know, you mentioned the romance of what Liverpool is and how that comes into play and uh, nationality and all the different things that come into play. Cause these are humans that are, that are deciding this. And uh, that's what makes it fun, I guess. All right. What else, Mossy? What else are we looking at here? Well, let's uh, transition to Syria, which is the last of the top European leagues that isn't over yet, but it is over as far as the title race, because Juventus last time out clinched their ninth straight Serie A title, uh, courtesy of a 2-0 win over Sampdoria. Um, I mean, you played in this league when it was hyper-competitive. I mean, can you even wrap your head around uh, a t- one team winning uh, Serie A nine seasons in a row? You have to go back to 2010-11 for 
for the last time somebody other than Juventus won it. Yeah, I mean, the, the separation that that is that is shown and backed up by the actual Scudettos, you know, because I, you know, I played in a time where it was AC Milan and they were the team, but there was a lot of competition, as you said. And it's not that, that Milan didn't win a lot, but I think that separation that we that we see, and certainly from a from a winning perspective, um, it's exasperated right now. Uh, it is because we 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 argue about this all the time, especially relative to MLS. You know, I think the the parity and the manufactured parity is one of the things that makes it unique, and for my money, interesting. Because you know, while we do have some separation, the reality is that at the beginning of the season, everybody thinks that I could win it. Okay, not everybody wins it, but everybody thinks I could win it. And that's not the case in a lot of leagues. And we argue each and every year that's that's problematic for these leagues. Is it is it really problematic? Is it is it holding for when we're talking about Serie A right now? Is it holding Serie A back that that Juve is doing this? Is it holding the Bundesliga back that Bayern Munich is doing that? Is it holding La Liga back that? Barcelona and Real Madrid are constantly there. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the bottom line, maybe not. I mean, Gab Marcotti wrote a good piece after Bayern clinched their eighth Bundesliga title in a row, and he said that over those eight years, uh, ratings and attendance and, and revenues have actually gone up in the Bundesliga. So there's really no impetus to, to change things. But I tell you, it bothers me. And, and it bothers me when this is still analyzed in normal sporting terms. And people say, well, give Bayern credit and, and the Dortmunds and Schalke just need to step up and give Juventus credit and the other team just need to step up. Uh, I'm sorry, but th- th- this is not normal, okay? Bayern Munich had a team in the 70s with Beckenbauer and Gerd Müller and Paul Breitner that was good enough to win three straight European Cups and that team didn't achieve this level of domestic dominance. Juventus have had some great teams over the years in the 80s with Platini and Boniek and Shirea and Cabrini and Gentile and Tardelli. And in the 90s with Del Piero and Zidane, those teams didn't achieve this level of domestic dominance. This is not normal. This is a combination of factors, the financial gaps widening, these super clubs figuring out a way to monetize their brands, and also the mentality of players. Uh, every guy now wants to go play for these super clubs. They'd rather be a backup on these super clubs and a star for the second-tier teams. And these super clubs have more money than they know what to do with, so they hoard players. You've got, I mentioned this last week, you've got guys like James Rodriguez sitting on the bench at Real Madrid while he could be starring for a Sevilla or Valencia. And all of that has contributed to this top heaviness and predictability, which is not healthy to me as a fan. I don't like it. I don't like that we're sitting here and Bayern have won eight in a row and Juventus have won nine in a row. And I, I think if we keep going like this, it's not going to change. We'll be sitting here five years from now. Bayern will have won 13 Bundesliga titles in a row and still saying, well, give them credit and the Dortmunds just need to step up. And I don't know. I, I think we are reaching that tipping point where we need, might need some major structural changes here to, to rectify this. So what I hear you saying, Mossy, is that these leagues need salary caps. Uh, and these leagues need roster restrictions. And I also hear you saying that uh, you need to get rid of promotion relegation and it should have playoffs, right? Is that is that true too? <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a couple of a couple of notes on Syria. There's a there's still a tremendous uh, golden boot race going on. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo having an incredible season, 31 goals, but he trails Immobile by three. Immobile is at 34. Amazingly enough, there, there's two rounds left, so we'll see if Ronaldo can catch him. If anybody can, it's him. Also, uh, Sadi uh, became the 
10th straight uh, Italian manager to win Syria. I, I had to do the math quickly in my head. Uh, Allegri won it with AC Milan in 2011. Then it was Conti three in a row with Juventus. Then Allegri five in a row with Juventus. And now Maurizio Sarri wins it. Uh, you have to go all the way back to the 09-010 season when Mourinho won it with Inter Milan for a foreign manager. And it is interesting. And, and then Italians have also gone to England and had great success there. Uh, Ancelotti won the Premier League in 2010. Mancini in 2012. Uh, then... Ranieri 2016, Conti 2017. So that is one thing that Italians can take pride in that I think right now they are the most relevant nation in terms of managers. And they look at the Premier League and they say, okay, well, you have to bring in the, the Peps and the Klops and the Mourinho's and the Pochettinos while, you know, we still have Italian managers winning Serie A and they, they extract some sort of pride out of that. Do you, uh, I know coaching, big theme on this podcast, because I talked about that with MLS and bringing in guys that actually understand the league. Do you think that is something Italians should take pride in or know who cares where the manager's from? But I, I saw that stat trumpeted a lot in the Italian newspapers the last few days. No, I think that Italians should take pride that there is a international recognition and respect for what an Italian manager can bring. And, and I guess that is based broadly on the fact, first and foremost, that he is Italian and therefore has whether it's true or not, there's the perceived, uh, the perception that he has a greater understanding of how the game works uh, based on history and based on culture and, and all that. And, and look, the amount of Italian managers, and as you mentioned, the exports uh, of Italian managers that have gone on to had success, that's, that is, that is, that is, uh, you know, that's a good thing. I think that's a, I think that is something that that Italian soccer, not just Syria, but just Italian soccer can be proud of and certainly uh, should, should celebrate. When it comes to the, the coach of Juventus, though, you just throw out the ball, evidently, <laughs> and you win <laughs> and you win the Scudetto. I mean, let's, let, because they, they can change managers, but the results still, still stay the same. And to be fair, that happened uh, with Bayern Munich, too. But uh, Zlatan, okay? He's still playing over I there, right? I mean, very interesting, right? Uh, because you were talking about Ronaldo, who you know continues to win wherever he goes. You know, he can have criticism from people, but ultimately, he won in England. Uh, oh, he won Portugal. He won in England. He won in Spain, obviously, uh, and has won in uh, in Italy. And Zlatan also has won many of the places that he has been. And you know, while he how, while he didn't necessarily win Scudetto with AC Milan in this in this latest return to Italy. I mean, he has made an impact and age means nothing when it comes to Zlatan in terms of his impact on the field and how important he is to whatever team he plays. So where do you think he ends up? How do you think, you know, because he's just on year to year type of contracts evidently right now. Yeah, he, uh, listen, he's 38. Um, I don't think he's going to move again now. I think he re-signs with AC Milan. As you mentioned, he played well there. He has a good relationship with Pioli. Uh, it's interesting that both Zlatan and Donnarumma are Mino Raiola clients and Milan are also dealing with the Donnarumma situation. So I, I read Mino Raiola had something of a summit with Zlatan and Donnarumma to kind of map out the strategy for both those players. But I think with Zlatan, it's going to result in him re-signing with AC Milan. I don't think at 38, he's now going to make another move in his career. Uh, but, you know, Milan are very interesting right now. We, we talked about the Italian managers, and I think it really influenced the analysis of this Pioli-Rangnick situation. Um, for, you know, for those of you that don't know, um, AC Milan began the season with a new manager, a guy named Marco Giampaolo, and he was a disaster. They sacked him in October. They brought in Stefano Pioli, who's this veteran Italian manager. Um, and he was doing an okay job, but nothing special up until like March. Like when Serie A shut down, Milan was still in eighth place and trudging along towards a disappointing season. 
And uh, he still felt like kind of an interim guy. And the expectation was they were going to bring somebody else in. And the guy they identified was Ralph Rangnick, who we know because uh, he's over the last decade, he's been the architect of uh, RB Leipzig's rise. Yep. He's bounced back and forth between being their manager and their sporting director. And so uh, it's been like the worst kept secret in Italian football the last few months at Milan. We're going to hire Rangnick at the end of the season. Um, but lo and behold, after the restart, they went in this incredible run under Pioli. They've been absolutely lights out. Now, that happens sometimes. It's sort of liberating when a manager knows he's not going to be around anymore, and then the team ends up, start, ends up playing well. 99 times out of 100, the team still follows through with the change they were planning to make. Instead, in this case, Milan made a U-turn. They announced, we're not hiring Rangnick. We're going to stick with Pioli. They gave him a two-year contract. Um, and this was uh, applauded in the Italian media. Uh, Pioli had become something of the underdog in this story and people feel like he really earned the job. And there was also something of, you know, he's an Italian manager getting the nod over a foreign guy who has never been in Syria. So I think that played a part in it as well. But then there's the Roy Smith side of it who feels like, boy, you know, this, this club's been kind of bumbling around for the last decade. They need fresh, bold, new ideas. Rangnick would have provided that. And to chuck all that away because, you know, Pioli had a nice 10 game run. It feels very like short-sighted. And, and, and Roy Smith's disappointed they pulled the plug on the, on the Rangnick thing. Um, and now you read, Gab Marcotti wrote a really good column when he kind of presented both sides. And, and he says that Rangnick maybe wanted too much power. You know, it's one thing, he's been a successful sporting director and he's been a successful manager, but he wanted to do both those jobs at the same time. And he wanted complete control over everything. And Milan, weren't, that's sort of a, a, a Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger model that's becoming increasingly passe now. In most clubs, they want to have a sporting director and a manager in place and not have one guy have managed the club and have total control over transfers. So there might've been an issue there too. And maybe the Rangnick thing wasn't such a done deal, but in any event, this Milan situation was very fascinating to follow. It, it results in Pioli staying in the job. He gets a two-year contract. He had a very good relationship with Zlatan. So I think that increases the possibility of Zlatan resigning there. And we'll see what, 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 you know, what becomes of Rangnick and where AC Milan go from here. Well, what, whether it's Rangnick or whether it's, Sir Alex or anybody else in, in the age of the sporting director, technical director, I mean, there's a million different names. If you can amass that power uh, and, and if you have enough leverage to get that, you have to get it because the way I look at it in terms of the org chart, I don't think it does you any good to have one of those sporting director, technical director, whatever you want to call it, positions filled if that person is not overseeing the actual coach. And if you're a coach manager, you don't want anybody overseeing what you're doing. You don't want anybody telling you. And as a matter of fact, you want to be able to tell others what is happening. But so I, I you know, I, I completely get why managers would want to try to coalesce that power and not have to deal with somebody, uh, with somebody over him. I do think, as you mentioned, I do think this is short-sighted. Okay. Because I do think that whether it's players, coaches, well, it's human beings, uh, when the circumstances are changed and you are you are now free because of the fact that you know you're out, I do think that you behave differently. And the fact is that he wasn't able to do it when the real pressure was on, the normal type of pressure. And it was only after it was alleviated and it was clear that they were going in a different direction that the real team or the real coach actually showed up. But it, once again, it, it's an Orlando bubble <laughs> and it's, it, it's not sustainable because, because now you have the security 
of that two-year two-year deal, and I worry that it's just going to return. And look, even if none of that had happened, I still think it's an inspired and interesting hire, and something that really would have benefited uh, uh, benefited them. All right, uh, let's finish it up here when it comes to Europe. Uh, one of the great players in Europe, Mbappe, unfortunately injured. Uh, it's obviously a crushing blow to uh, PSG, but also just to soccer fans who just love love to see him. Uh, we know that France was an outlier to a certain extent where they just shut down their entire uh, season. And, you know, we can argue about whether that was right or wrong, but, but inevitably what it did was give teams a whole lot of time off uh, and an opportunity to get rusty. Uh, In this case, he was injured in the, uh, in the cup final as they get ready to return to play in, in the champions league. Is this, is this really bad for PSG or can they overcome it? It's not like they don't have other players. It is really bad. Now, Alex Dowd wants us to, quote, keep the powder dry because once we get closer to the uh, Champions League, we're going to presumably have uh, bigger discussions about that. But, yeah, my, my initial thoughts here. So Mbappe picks up this ankle injury, French Cup Finals, you mentioned, in Saint-Étienne, and he, it looks like he will miss the uh, Champions League quarterfinal against Atalanta August 12th in Lisbon. Uh, keep in mind, Di Maria is suspended for that game, and Cavani is no longer around because he did not. Uh, his contract ran out at the end of the season. He did not sign that extension that some players are signing so they can play the mm-hmm. Champions League for their current clubs. Uh, so this is, to me, a terrible development for them because this will also trigger some bad habits in Neymar. Uh, Neymar is at his best when he trusts his teammates, when he plays within the team, if he takes the field that day with this hero complex of, oh, these guys aren't around, so I got to do everything, I think you, you, might be, you might be seeing one of those irritating Neymar performances where every time he gets a ball, he tries to make the perfect pass or dribble through two or three players and gives the ball away all the time. So uh, th- this is really trending in Atalanta's favor. They're already uh, you know, the team that's going to be sharper because of Serie A going uh, as late as it is and, and Ligue 1 being shut down. I know PSG have played some friendlies and they have these, these two cup finals and one against Saint-Étienne and that they've already played. And then they have one against Lyon now coming up, but still, I mean, this was, this was already kind of looking like Atalanta had the advantage here and now you take Mbappe off the field too. So, I mean, I dare to say Atalanta are clear favorites in this matchup, August 12th, if, if Mbappe is indeed out. All right, before we move on, just remind everybody of, uh, of the dates when it comes to, uh, to Champions League, because Mbappe's out, uh, last I read, three weeks or so, and that puts him into the, uh, the zone of missing uh, the, the return of Champions League in the bubble in Portugal, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. Yeah, you still have uh, four round of 16 second legs to be played August right. 7th and August 8th. Those will be played uh, at the venues that they were originally scheduled. That's uh, Manchester City looking to finish off Real Madrid. Uh, Bayern Munich, uh, putting Alex Dow's Chelsea out of their misery. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Juventus looking to overturn a 1-0 deficit against Lyon. And then you've got Barcelona-Napoli, which was 1-1 in Italy, and now they go back to Camp Nou. Uh, and then once four teams advance out of that, uh, to join with the four that have already advanced to the quarterfinals, the eight teams will then go to Lisbon. And then the quarterfinals are August 12th through the 15th. Uh, and then everything from that point forward is one-off games in Lisbon, uh, culminating with the August 23rd final at Benfica Stadium, the Stadio da Luz. Wow. All right. Well, we'll see uh, how much or little it does affect uh, PSG. Uh, all right. Anything else, Mossy, uh, when it comes to the world wrap-up? No, that's it. Okay. Uh, we're going to take another quick little break. And when we come back, we'll be uh, answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment. So uh, don't go away. All right, moving on. 
Hello, people. It's Alexi here reminding you about the important initiative we're working on here at Fox Sports. So many kids across the country are without access to structured play or even fitness options at home due to COVID-19. That's why Fox Sports is teaming up with Good Sports on their Restore Play initiative to bring sports and play back to kids in need through donations of brand new sports equipment. Your donations make it possible for kids to stay active and engaged in sports. Just go to goodsports.org to donate. Again, that's goodsports.org to donate and learn how you can help keep kids in the game. And now back to the show. Okay, we're back. Uh, it's that uh, time of the uh, pod when we answer your questions or we deal with your comments and your concerns. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy. We get a lot of Ask Mossy now uh, when it comes to uh, the social media platforms out there, whether it's in Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else. Uh, send us through using those uh, those hashtags, and we pick three out as we did to, as we did this week. Mossy, what do people want to know this week? First up, at amgooner10, do you think Pulisic has some animosity towards Lampard for not playing him often in the beginning of the season, or do you think his mostly late-season success healed the wound? I don't think that he has animosity, uh, because I don't think that he is built that way. I think he is, I think he is growing, um, I think he's growing as a player and obviously as as a young man. And inevitably, you're going to be changed by the circumstances and the, the things that you go through. I, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that there's animosity. I, I do love his penchant for using, you know, these moments as motivation. And time and time again, um, e- either it's because of a coaching choice or it's because of injury or whatever it ends up being, when he comes back, he, he tends to come back and whatever it is, he uses it to fuel his performances. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that there are wounds to be healed or anything like that. I mean, I look, I think if you look at this year for Christian Pulisic, uh, I think it has to be viewed as a success, an over, overwhelming success. I think you can probably probably make an argument in terms of the way that we, and when I say not just not just U.S. soccer fans, but I think we as soccer fans all over the world now look at Pulisic has been enhanced by by his performances, and I think he has made a case as being not just a starter but an integral and vital component going forward to the team doing well. In that, when he's been on the field, he's performed. When he's been off the field, there has been this idea that the team needs him on the field in order to perform. So, you know, that's a, that's a long answer to your question there, A.M. Gooner 10. But no, I don't think that there's any animosity. I mean, no player likes to be sat. No player likes to not be in the starting lineup. And But that's not real, that's not real animosity. If this is a, con- a, a constant and a continual type of thing that happens – you know, then maybe he'll, he'll get angry, but come next year, there's going to be more uh, competition. And so that's a good thing. It's a good thing for Christian Pulisic and it's a good thing for Chelsea. I've had this lingering sense all season that all things being equal, Lampard's natural inclination is to not start him. Now he's not stubborn about it. If Pulisic is outperforming the the players he's competing with for, for minutes, he does get in the lineup. But when it's, when it enters that realm of you could go either way with it, he generally doesn't get the benefit of the doubt, which, which has been a tad frustrating at times. Uh, I will say on Pulisic, 
that play he made against Liverpool to set up the Tammy Abraham goal, I know U.S. fans get accused sometimes of like overreacting to things and blowing it out of proportion. I'm sorry. There's no blowing that play out of proportion. That was incredible. I was on the phone with my dad that same day, and we were struggling to remember the last time a Brazilian made a play like that in a game of that magnitude. I mean, that was a special, special moment. There are not many players in the world against a team like Liverpool that can do that to slice and dice. At first look, I thought that with Trent Alexander, oh, the ball just sort of deflected kindly into his path, and there might have been a little bit of an element of luck on that last one. And then you see the replay from the other end, and you said, no, he nutmegged him, and that was the best dribble out of the whole sequence. That was mind-blowing. Yeah, it was it was wonderful to see, especially in this day and age where so few players have the courage or the talent to take players on and multiple players on. And if you got a guy that's able to do that, obviously you draw players and it opens up things for uh, for everybody else. And that's what Christian Pulisic uh, is is doing on a uh, consistent basis. All right, what's next? At the Smiths, nineteen eighty six. You'll like this question. Uh, what happened to Nagby? Can he get back in the U.S. men's national team? All right. So those that don't know Darlington Nagby, who I have said is the most talented American soccer player playing today, for whatever reason, and it's it's personal reasons, uh, and he is, you know, he's not he's not clearly articulated it, but obviously he does not want to play for the national team right now, the U.S. Uh, men's national team, and uh, as I said, it has nothing to do with, you know, the kicking of the ball. I think it has to do with his family and, you know, the time and the commitment that it takes to play for a national team. And look, I don't want anybody playing for the national team that doesn't want to be there. You have to want to be there. Okay. Does this mean that he can't play for the national team? No, he could be, he could either have a change of heart or he could have his mind changed. And that's why we talked a little bit last week about, uh, the selling of the program that I think, whether it's Greg Berhalter uh, or Brian McBride or Ernie Stewart, have to do for all players, including somebody as important, or as I think can be as important as a Darlington Nagby. Once again, not begging, okay, but but laying it out. So, yes, he can get back into the national team, but I, it has to stem from him. It has to come from him. He has to want it, which would mean he would ha- have had a an incredible change of heart. And I'm not sure that it's as easy as, as it sounds because he, he's already had plenty of opportunities to have that change of heart and nothing, nothing has changed. And obviously there's plenty of love. So it's not a question of whether, whether he would find a positive environment there, but you know, everybody has to make their own decisions. And I, in a certain way, I respect the fact that, that this is how he feels and he's he's sticking with it, but I think you you do yourself a disservice and your country a disservice as a national team coach if you completely shut the door. Once again, don't waste valuable time and resources begging somebody to do it if they don't want to, um, and they have to meet you halfway. So Darlington Nagby, I think, also has to has to say this is something that while in the past I I didn't want to do, now I have a feeling that I want to do this, and I'm. I'm not sure that we're anywhere closer to having him be in that position. Mossy. And we'll end on this. At Maddie underscore McPherson, if you were in charge of an MLS expansion club, uh, what city, what name, colors, crest, and DPs? Oh, my God. Boy, he wants the whole gamut. Wow. 
I'm not going to give it away. I mean, you got to pay for that. Uh, you know, incredible insight. Well, look, I, you know, my, you know, my connection and my love and my belief that a place like Detroit can be successful. Uh, you know, I would, I would certainly look at someplace like Detroit. I think it lends itself to, to what major league soccer is or is becoming, uh, you know, whether it's the, the proximity and the rivalry possibilities when it comes to Detroit, whether it's the market and what it is and how attractive that would be, not just in market, but as, you know, the footprint for Major League Soccer, you know, the soccer community and the culture that exists there, I think it would be something that people would gravitate to, you know, notwithstanding how important the Red Wings are and even, you know, the Lions and the Pistons. Also, you know, I think we were talking last week about or I might have been talking to somebody else about the age that came before of stadiums and putting MLS stadiums outside of the city and uh, in industrial parks and just taking whatever was available at the time, as opposed to the philosophy right now of putting, putting teams and stadiums downtown. And what Detroit is becoming in 2020 and, and going forward um, is something that I think would be very, very attractive to have a soccer-specific stadium, which was a, the original plan when MLS was a possibility of an expansion team. I think that that would be a wonderful addition to a downtown that continues to grow uh, and continues to have a belief that it can be something bigger than it has been in the past. So all of those different things. Like, I'm not giving you, I don't know what designated players or or anything like that. As far as the you know, the branding, obviously we have Detroit City FC. I would love to see a scenario where the good, uh, and there is plenty of good that someone like Detroit City FC has done in a limited form and in a obviously much smaller form can be, can be used and utilized and harnessed to make an even bigger version of that going, uh, going forward. Because I think it can be something that is very, very attractive to you know, the changing world we live in and the changing Detroit that exists right now. So that, you know, that for me would be, would be wonderful to see. And no, I wouldn't have an FC. I would make sure that the branding was something that was different, that was unique, that paid homage to the great city of Detroit uh, and to the wonderful people there. And, you know, ultimately was something that was special that not only the people of Detroit got into, but everybody around looked at it and said, Hey, that's, that's cool. Maybe it's not my team and maybe I'm not there, but I can look at that and I can say that is something that I would want to be a part of if I was in uh, a place like Detroit. Did we talk about Charlotte FC last week? We talked about Charlotte FC, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we talked about the FC thing, right. how much it bothers us. I did get a tweet from somebody saying, well, it can't be SC because that would, people would confuse yeah, that yeah, with yeah. In South Carolina. So, well, we have uh, the new, uh, St. Louis team coming online too. So we're going to, you know, we got names dropping all over the place. So we're going to see what St. Louis uh, does with their name. If there's an FC involved uh, and how that ultimately uh, shapes out too. I, I can't, I, you know, I can't get enough of naming and branding and all this kind of stuff. Moss, I will say the, the, say the most interesting part of the question to me that you didn't answer was DPs. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'll just say, and uh, I, I mentioned this last week, I'll reiterate it here. Uh, listen, you, if, if the right uh, star came along, I mean, I wouldn't say no to Messi, but generally speaking, 
I would go like the Miguel Almiron route before I'd go the Zlatan route. I, I really think that's mm-hmm. kind of the direction this league is moving in. So uh, that, that's if I was owning an expansion team, that's where I would look to spend my DP money. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, okay, Mossy, anything else? That's it. All right, so we come to the end of uh, yet another podcast. I know this one uh, was a little bit long, but you know, you get some some bonus bonus content from uh, from us here. Uh, but at the end of each and every pod, uh, we give you uh, one for the road. And uh, you know, I had I had tweeted earlier this week about you know my opinion, my stance that that Major League Soccer and Major League Soccer teams that. It is a business. They are individual businesses as their teams and obviously the business and the single entity of Major League Soccer. They do not, and I tweeted this, that they, uh, at least I believe, they do not have a responsibility to provide opportunities for an American player. When I returned in 1996, along with a bunch of others to Major League Soccer, it was because this was our thing. Okay, this was a cosa nostra. And yes, it was providing opportunities for American players to play the game that we love in our home country. Okay, and there is even some wording, if you go back and look at the original wording, about the belief that this was going to do that. Having said that, I never felt that I was to be gifted or granted. Um, or guaranteed opportunities. And, you know, when I see teams out there in Major League Soccer with, you know, the incredible uh, diversity and the international aspect of it, uh, I don't look at that as problematic. So much so that I don't even think there should be restrictions. If And I've said this before, if an MLS team believes that they for their customer, that the best thing for their business is to have a product that is all international players, they should, they should be allowed to do that, okay? I do believe that the American player will, will find a way. I do believe that the American player will be given opportunities, ultimately because they're good. I also recognize that, and I've said this before, that the international player, is sexier, and from a business perspective, can provide more value. But ultimately, I think as these teams continue to grow and they continue to mine the world for talent, that American players, their value will increase. Now, their value may increase either uh, because American teams see that and go out and acquire that talent in terms of mining their own backyards, or American players may go elsewhere and in doing so their value will increase. (laughs) And then they might come back with increased value. I know a lot of people disagree with me and they believe that the entire premise of having, in this case, it's a North American league, but for our purposes, if I'm talking about American players, which I am one, that if it's not about creating opportunity for American players, then fundamentally you are missing out on something. And this is just you know, a disagreement that we have. And I know I talk a lot about business and I talk a lot about the realities of, uh, of business. The American player 
has a long history of coming up against challenges and finding a way to be productive and to be useful and to be valuable. And I believe that this is no different. So if there are teams out there that feel for their customer, the best product they can put on doesn't involve American players. For every one of those teams, I think that there'll be other teams that look at it completely different. I don't want American players to be playing over others simply because they're American. And I don't believe that that's ultimately what this business needs to be or should be going forward. And as I said before, in no way does that mean that I don't support the American player, but I just believe that they will, they will find a way. American player will find a way. They have in the past and they will continue to do so. And I don't think necessarily that it ultimately ends up hurting uh, the national team. MLS is, is very important for the national team, okay? And we've seen, you know, over in England, the way that the, the fewer opportunities in a strange way hasn't necessarily uh, hurt the national team. As a matter of fact, when we think about the English national team right now, I don't think that there's a time in the recent decades that we've thought about it in a more positive light. So the, you know, the development of American players as it relates to the national team isn't necessarily hurt. So, you know, this is, this is an evolving concept and this is something that continues to grow uh, and to change when it comes to the responsibilities of American leagues, whether it's MLS or any other league for that matter, the responsibilities of teams as they have, you know, we were talking earlier about a potential team in Detroit. When a team comes online, what is the responsibility that you have to your community? What is the responsibility that you have to create a pathway to connect with your local player? How much or little of a responsibility? Do teams even have a responsibility to develop young talent in their market? I also argue that if a team doesn't want to have an academy and doesn't want to have youth development, they should be allowed to do that. If they just want to go out on the market and buy the best players, be that international players or other American players, if that's what they feel is appropriate, they should be allowed to do that. And people disagree with me. And I'm sure people are listening right now saying uh, that you're wrong and they disagree. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's wonderful, actually. I, I enjoy that. And I look forward to having these types of, uh, these types of discussions. But, uh, you know, when we, when we end these pods and I, you know, I talk about, you know, one for the road, I think of how the sport has changed. Our country has changed. Obviously, this league that I was part of from the start in 1996 has changed. And maybe to a certain extent, I've changed. Um, and, you know, I talked earlier in the pod about my different experiences, both on and off the field. And you can't help but be changed. You can't help but gain new perspectives uh, and new realities to what soccer is, uh, the business of soccer off the field and the business of soccer uh, on the field. And you know what? I'll continue to change and I'll continue to evolve. Mossy, uh, anything uh, before we head out? That's it. All right. We will talk to you again uh, next week. As always, please send us those questions using the hashtag AskAlexi and AskMossy. Uh, check us out uh, on Twitter uh, and send it to us on Instagram and all that. Please rate and subscribe and review and download. We uh, appreciate and we thank you so much for uh, all of your years now of uh, patronage. And uh, we look forward to continuing to give you 
future episodes of uh, the State of the Union. And we will be back again next week. Again, apologies for the 24-hour delay. It could not be helped, but uh, we gave you a little extra here because of that. We will be back again next uh, recording next Monday and, and out next Tuesday back on our normal schedule. All right, we will see you again next week. And as always, size the day. <laughs> <laughs>